I don't really want fear to hold me back. I don't want to look back when I'm old and think, you know, you didn't do that because you were scared. It feels very weak. So I would like to um, just keep pushing through my phobias and overcome them. Hello, and welcome to season two of the Future Podcast. Thought it appropriate that we start this season with somebody who has truly an inspirational story. Who am I talking about? Talk about none other than Ian Paget, the mind, the man behind Logo Geek and its thriving community. Ian is a scrapper, a young guy who has built his career purely out of the pursuit of doing what he loves. Even when his parents discourage him from artistic endeavors, Ian knew he couldn't give up. Today, Without any formal education, Ian is an in-demand designer and is conquering the SEO game. This episode, we're going to talk about the web and some of the things he did to slay that beast early on in his career. And we're going to talk about something that is really important to Ian, overcoming his fears. Okay, so my name's Ian. Um, basically, I work as a... Um, a creative director for an e-commerce company and um, part-time I uh, run a um, freelance business called Logo Geek and through Logo Geek I'm basically working on logos for clients and I'm also building a like an, an online community um, and basically creating resources for those people. This is quite interesting. You're a creative director for an e-commerce company? That's correct, yes. And then, so what drove you to start Logo Geek? Because I think that's how a lot of people are going to know who you are through your doppelganger, your avatar online. I think this is probably going to be quite an interesting story. But basically, ever since I've been um, working, I've, I've always liked to kind of practice my skills on, on the side. Um, you know, so from the very early days that included things like uh, cd covers for people that i was able to find on um myspace so a, a lot of that stuff at that time was purely for free just to kind of practice so it involved kind of my own kind of self um self-started projects or it could be um you know for friends or, or family say but the, the only reason why i was doing side projects was as a way to um, practice um, skills so that I could get better in my day job. So um, I think probably the biggest side project that I worked on was actually a computer game. So it was an iPhone game. There was a few um, guys that I met that I, I realized was able to build um, com computer games and apps and stuff like that. And uh, I come up with a, a fun idea and I kind of pitched it to them and they loved the idea. So we, we basically just started building it and uh, it was so much work. I mean, if you can imagine, I, I had quite um, a stressful day job and then I would come home and sit down and keep working. And um, I would say it was kind of on and off for about four years working on, on this project. Um, and I mean, it involved things like, you know, drawing little characters, doing backgrounds, doing, um, uh, working on interfaces and, and lots of things like that. So that was quite a long period of time. And I, I did all of that work, you know, completely for, for free, to be honest, just because I, I enjoyed it. And the hope was that at the end of that, we would 
um, you know, have the success of Angry Birds, but <laughs> it didn't quite work out. But right. anyway, um, I, I guess that kind of got me used to just working on projects on the side. And um, at the end of that period, um, I don't know if you've ever worked on a, a project for a substantial amount of time, but personally, at the end of that, I, I felt quite burnt out. I felt like I was just mm -hmm. trying to do too much. Um, so I, I made my mind up okay, I'm going to just focus on my day job um, and on the side, I won't take on any more um, sort of side projects just because it's too much. But I'd say probably about two, three weeks passed by and I'm like, I really want to work on some project. <laughs> and <laughs> That didn't last long. <laughs> and I started talking uh, to a friend about it and uh, they mentioned... Oh, you're quite good at Legos, Ian. And I mean, just bear in mind, at that point, I, I had worked on Legos in my day job, um, but it was only now and again. Like, we would probably only ever work on a Lego like, once a month or every other month. And, and I, I, found, I found it a little bit frustrating because it's such a skill that, that, you know, you do one and you kind of get into it and you start learning the processes. And then this like eight week period would come by and you'd have to go back and go I need to look into that again you'd have to start basically learning how to do this thing again and I, I never really felt like I was making any great progress so the the idea of doing more logos at home just to practice just for fun um you know seemed like a, an ideal solution and and also uh, a logo project is quite quick to turn around as well, especially if I was doing them as paid projects because um, I could take them on, I could work on them, you know, for a two-week period or how, however long it took, and then stop. So that that um, get, going from that four-year-long project to this, that sounded like, like a perfect solution. So mm. I thought, yeah, perfect. This is what I think I'm going to do now. I'd love to learn more about logos, um, and I love to keep practicing doing them. So, uh, what I did at that point, uh, I can't remember the exact steps that I took, but basically, I I know I needed a website, uh, so I wrote down a list of like company names that I wanted to um, potentially do, and. I'd write them down, and then I'd sit there on um, like one, two, three, reg, say, and and I start typing in these different names, and you know, I had a list of like a hundred things, Chris, and <laughs> nothing was there. Nothing's available. Nothing was available. I mean, th this was at the point where there was literally only the choice of like uh, a .com or a .co.uk, well, for people in the UK anyway. There wasn't any of these new domains. So right. I don't know. It just felt like there was nothing. And um, I remember just trying. I thought, this isn't going to be there. I put logogeek.co.uk in. And you know what? <laughs> it was available. <laughs> and uh, it was the first one that was available and um, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing for what I wanted to do but I thought I'm going to register that because that sounds really good um, before, before it gets taken by somebody yeah, exactly. else so I, I registered the domain and uh, because I've uh, had experience with, with web previously I, I had some experience with WordPress 
So, um, yeah, I registered the, the domain, um, went to WordPress.org, downloaded that, found some, um, you know, fairly cheap template, thrown something together. You know, literally, um, at that point, I, don't, I wasn't even that good at writing, but I, I threw some content together, cobbled together a few bits and pieces that I'd done, um, and I, I made a website. And this, at this point, it was just for me, just for fun, um, because like I said, those Lego projects, I was going to do them for free, just for fun, just to practice, um, just so that I could get better at Legos, and then maybe one day eventually work for a branding agency say because that that's always been my mindset i've i've never wanted to work as a freelancer i've always just wanted to you know go up the ladder essentially you know go right. go from one company to maybe work at a branding agency and keep working my way up so my goal has always been to you know physically improve my skills and to learn just and you know i, I love doing it as well so i've i've never seen um it that way so yeah, I I had that website there. It was right. terrible. It sat there for some time. I did the occasional logo for people for either for free or for uh, you know very tiny amounts of money. But then one day, <laughs> someone sent a message through that website. <laughs> I gotta ask you, what year was this when you set up the site? I'm trying to get some kind of time frame here. It's probably about five years ago. Something like that. Okay, so that's like 2012. I might. I think it might be 2013. Like, um, okay. I could. I could. I could probably check back through, uh, like, blog posts or something like that. But it's about 2012, 2013, around that sort of time. And how long was it before somebody actually reached out and contacted you through the website? I think I had someone through Facebook, a friend, who reached out to me first. Um, but in terms of the person I didn't know, you know, like a real inquiry, it was probably only about two months or three months. Oh, wow. it, it, it didn't take so long. So now I got too many questions for you. All right. This is great. Okay. So two, two to three months. This is like a cold lead who found your site. This wasn't friends. This was organic sales generation. This is inbound marketing here, right? That's correct. Okay. Did you do the project with this person? Yes. That's excellent. And how much did you charge for your first logo through your site? I thought it was actually um, quite a good price, but I actually charged only £100. <laughs> £100. Yeah, so, I mean... How did I, I feel? I wasn't expecting that. And, right. I mean, if you can imagine at that point, the logos that I had done, it was just for friends at work you know people that that know that i could potentially help them or or family you know it, i was never expecting or imagining to actually do anything for a real person so that moment that was like oh my god i <laughs> uh okay got a real project and uh that money that come in it's money on top of my paycheck already that I, I wasn't expecting. So it's kind of like, you know, pocket money. It's like, oh, wow, you know, an extra £100 to spend this month. Um, right. Because, you know, if you can imagine, it can go towards uh, like holidays, for example, or, you know, if I wanted to buy, I don't know, a new games console or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, something fun. Like, yeah, I got some spending money. It was good. Um, I can't remember Were you nervous? how long... Was I nervous? Not really. Yeah. 
Not really. Um, okay. I, I guess where I do get nervous is if they ask me to call them on the phone. Um, that can be an area where I do start to feel quite uncomfortable, um, especially because in my day job, they have a, account managers. So um, from my perspective, I'm not used to working direct to, di directly with the client. At that point, I'd only ever kind of just done the job, passed it over to someone else, and they dealt with the client. I'd also never dealt with the sales side of things. So wow. that whole experience was new for me. Okay, so without revealing too much, do you mind me asking how old you were at this point in time when this first new client came? Um, probably 25. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to say. I don't mind. Um, how old was I? Probably about 26, 27, something like that. Okay. So it sounds to me like you're perfectly content working at your, at your full-time job you got burnt out with not a lot of results for working on this iPhone game for four years. And that's a really long endeavor mm -hmm. for us. Cause since we work in commercials, a long project might be three to six months. And that's really long for us. Usually there are five or six weeks and we're on to the next thing. So for you to get out of it and it's like, it didn't go anywhere. I think the antidote for you was to do something that was fast, fun and fulfilling. Exactly. And you didn't have any expectations. And I love that. That's just the perfect attitude. And you said that all you wanted to do was learn and improve. So if a client came, it's extra pocket change, as you say. Exactly. And that's just that's just the, the perfect attitude. Now, since we didn't get into this part, you know, you, you guys are listening. You, you notice he has an accent because you're are you in Manchester now? Is that where you're? I'm in out? Manchester, but I've actually got a southern accent. So my my <laughs> accent is very different to the people in this area. Yeah. Okay, what's the southern accent? Uh, what is it uh, called? I I guess I live closer to I used to live closer to London, so I uh -huh. have more of um like a central accent. Um I see. But Manchester accent is slightly different. Don't ask me to do an impression, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I won't put you through that. Okay, this is awesome. So you're, you're 26, 27. You build a site in two months. Now, this is, I'm going to have to caution everybody who's got this bright idea now. Like, oh, I'll just create a site. And two months later, I'll get a job. I'll get some new work. And it could work out like that. But I think there's a little bit more to this. And maybe there is. I don't know. I think there is. How do you think these people found your website? Because there are a million websites out there. Okay. So I work for a uh, company that builds websites. And as part of that company, there is an online marketing company. Um, and there was a period of time where even though I wasn't working directly on the um, SEO side of things, you can't help but pick things up from people. And I, I've always been quite a curious person. So if I hear conversations around me, um, I'm going to pick it up, especially when someone's sat there explaining, like, this is how this works and so on. So I, I never had any formal training around um, search marketing, but I did pick up a lot of things from those people. So um, as part of that website, what I was keen to do uh, was to optimize it for search as well. So I, I did um, like the um, basics, um, like on the homepage with um, title tags, um, including uh, specific keywords in, within that content. Um, I was blogging, adding links. Um, I was getting uh, links from external sites as well. Like I wasn't doing it to the, the degree that I do now or that I wanted to, but I did 
a little bit. And I'm not entirely sure how that person actually came across me, whether it was through a, an actual Google search or, or if it was through um, uh, you know, something that I might have added the site to. But the, the fact is someone did come across my site, and I, I can only assume that it can be, it, it must have been from Google. Um, like that site must have been ranking in some way, whether it was on page 10 or whatever. Um, but one of the reasons why I did eventually kind of push things forward with Logo Geek was because I started to notice Google search results were improving. And um, now they're incredibly good. And uh, I get almost all of my leads through Google search. And I think one thing that you're probably going to be shocked about or listeners are going to be shocked about I'm running quite a successful business on the side, and I never do any marketing. I never do any outbound calls. I never do any, I don't go out there to networking events. I just literally, you know, sit down and my inbox is full of <laughs> emails because I focused on uh, online marketing from the outset. Like when I say online marketing, I, I guess I mean specifically SEO, search engine, right. search engine optimization. So that's been my focus from from mm. day one, essentially. So you don't do any sales and marketing yet. Clients are still coming to you, and you talked about knowing just enough to do SEO optimization that it got you some leads. Because here's something that everybody needs to pay attention to: clients can't hire you if they can't find you. Exactly. So now that you got your search game on, what is the phrase that everybody's typing in to find you? Like, where do you rank the highest? Do you know the search term? I I focus primarily on local search. Um, so logo design Manchester, position one. Okay. Um, I I did originally have that ranking position one in Reading. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I mean, it, I, I relocated. So I thought, okay, I'm going to change this so that I get local search. But then I also come up a lot around um, general terms around uh, logos. For so lo logo design, um, I'm generally, you know, that just that specific keyword in the UK. So on Google.co.uk, I um, I jump between page one and page two. Um, mm -hmm. At the moment, I've been lingering on page one for some time, and I uh, <laughs> I know what I need to do to get higher up. But it's really hard when you're competing with uh, these crowdsourcing, you know, the crowdfunding sites, because they are they have teams of online marketing people, and they're doing everything that I want to do, but probably ten times more. Right. But to be able to get on page one for generic, you know, very generic keywords is really good. Um, but Logo design, logo designer, um, logo design UK. I th I was position one, but now I'm position two. Um, logo design Manchester. Uh, there's things like logo design brief. There's loads of loads of different specific keywords around logos. Generally, come up on page one or page two. Um, so that's how uh, most people find me. Uh, they typically come onto my website and, and on my website I have a, a giant button at the top of the site that says get an inquire, um, uh, I can't remember, inquire now, something like that. 
And get a quote. Get yeah, a quote. Yeah, generally, I'm most. <laughs> I should probably. Okay, be before you say anything else, let me let me tell everybody how to find you. Okay, so if you're not already following Ian on Twitter, he's got a massive following. He's at eighty-eight thousand followers, and he's at at logo underscore geek. Mm -hmm. And if you want to find his website to follow along in his story, just go to logogeek.uk. And I just want to make a comment. I don't know how many people pick this up right away. But the ligature that you have in the word logo is reminiscent of your face with your glasses, right? That's and do people pick that up right away, or is that just something that is kind of very subtle? I I've actually only recently um, updated that logo, and in all honesty, I haven't had a a huge amount of feedback. But people do normally say. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> it's nice to be able to discover something in the word mark itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's I, very nice. I find uh, with uh, logos, one thing that I always like is when you do get that moment where you, where you spot that thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, that small feature, and, you, you know, you just have that moment where you think, oh, that's clever. And I, I wanted to do something like that in um, my own logo. And, um, I mean, when when you've got, your own logo and you got your own kind of logo business there was a, a long period of time where um i had something very simple and very basic and it um the the reason why I, why i did it that way was just because i wanted to um come across as a little bit more premium um but now I, now I've got more of a community around what i'm doing with logo geek i wanted to change it so that it it did have that clever element in there so that, you know, it's not just about me. There's this other side to it as well. And, um, yeah, I, I only recently introduced that, that logo that you can see now. And I've got mm -hmm. all these plans around it. <laughs> like, um, so with, with Logo Geek, I thought it would be cool. What if I could find a way to make the word logo on its own identifiable? And then I can have all these other things that is like um, logo pen, logo pad, um, you know, all these related things that are kind of branded up around see, Lego Geek. So you could do books and all sorts of stuff. So I was keen to create a new logo that that had the identifiable part so that you could see it's Lego Geek. And I feel that that new logo works really well. Nice. Good job on that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to play somebody in our audience right now. Of course, I want to get work. Of course, uh, being an introverted creative person... Uh, doing sales and marketing not only scares me, but it befuddles me. So I'm listening to this podcast right now and I'm thinking, Ian, come on, give us the secret sauce because we all want to be able to get clients without having to go out and chase after them and knock on their door. Can you share with us maybe two or three actionable things that somebody can do right now to help boost their organic search results? Okay. I mean, first of all, you need a website, um, and that website needs to have the capability to um, add like metadata. So metadata is the essentially that text that you see that's in Google. So when when you do a Google search and you see like that list and you got title and um, a piece of text underneath it. That is metadata. So within that metadata, um, you ideally want to have the keyword that you want to come up for. So what I, what I always recommend to do is start off kind of searching 
you try try to attract um, local search. So whatever area that you work in, that's probably the quickest win. So um, it, logo design Manchester in my case. If you put logo design your area, what like a really quick win is to put that in the um, meta title. Put that uh, within a H1 on your page and put it within the body text and to make sure that you've got your address on your website. There's, there are quite a lot of little things, but these are just really quick wins that you can do here today. Um, Google also looks at content. So if you have one of these websites that just have ni nice images, Google can't see that. Like Google is is a, a robot essentially, you know. It's it's just a load of um, algorithms and um, you know uh, basically hard drives. It's just lo loads and loads of uh, data banks and and algorithms. It's not actually a human being. So what it looks at these spiders crawl your website. They are looking at content. So. If you have no content on your website, if you just got a portfolio with images, Google is never, ever going to see your website in any way. It's not going to rank you in the way that it would um, my website. That That's why I have a lot of content on my website. It's primarily for Google. So if you have no content on your website at the moment, um, I'd write somewhere between like 500 and 1,000 words and put it on your homepage. So that's another quick win. Um, you also want to make sure to um, structure the content in the way that you would a book. So a book has a front cover, it has uh, cont uh, contents, and it has like body, body text within it. So how that translates to online is you just want one H1. You want to have um, um, titles, so uh, H1s, no, H1s, H2s, H3s, and so on. Um, you want to have nice paragraphs, and that keyword that you came up with, like um, historical um, SEO, you could just kind of spam it with all sorts of different texts. But if you, if you was to have like a, a specific keyword that you wanted to rank for, so um, Lego Design Manchester, for example. Um, Google's intelligent enough to know that uh, Lego Design is related to other terms. So um, it could be uh, designers, Lego Design, Lego Designer, uh, branding. Like There's all these words that kind of relate with that. And um, there's a term where it's called uh, lexical keywords, where they're kind of associated keywords. So those keywords, um, you can kind of alternate between all these different words. And Google, Google likes that. So that body text that you write, I mean, obviously try and write about you. You know, make make sure it makes sense for a human being if they read it. But at the end of the day, what you're writing it for is um, for the Google robots that are going through it. Uh, to rank. I'm trying to think of another quick win. What about external links? You mentioned that before. Yeah, so uh, another really important thing um, for search is the, the stuff that's happening off your website. Um, so if you've got a website that's just sat there and it's got all these um, all this content and kind of links between the pages, 
it's kind of not really doing anything. So what you need to start doing is to get links from other websites. And um, they have to be relevant. And the more authoritative site that is, the better, um, the, the kind of more weight that link has. So what I've tried to do is, um, and what I continually kind of try to do as part of my business is find ways to get links from other websites. So that could be um, blogging on, on another website. So you could write a blog and then um, ask someone else to post that on the website. Or you could reach out to um, other blogging sites and go, would you be interested in me writing for you? Here's a couple of examples of things that I've done. So I've I've been lucky enough um, to be approached by um, sites like Creative Block. So I wrote on Creative Block, and I've been able to get links from them. Um, so there's there's I mean there, there's loads of ways to get in links, but even even things like this interview, Chris, you're going to write show notes. I hope <laughs> I will. Yes, and you're going to put a link. <laughs> I will, and that's one of the reasons <laughs> why I keep doing interviews, Chris. <laughs> That's right. Because I can sit down for um, like writing a blog takes a lot, quite a lot of time, but doing something like this interview now, it takes mm -hmm. probably like two hours of my time. But what that means is um, I only need to spend two hours of my time, and I'll get a link. So there's, you know, there's there's so many opportunities out there from um, uh, blogging and and so on to get those links. I guess where it becomes a challenge is when you want the really high authoritative sites, like a, a website like Creative Block, they're not going to allow just anyone to to start posting on there. Like if you was to find um, their contact address and email them, they're probably going to ignore it. So how do you <laughs> how do you get um, noticed by these people? And the way that you get noticed by these people is to become an influencer in the industry. So, Chris, the, 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 all the stuff that you've done with your YouTube videos and everything like that, you're, you've got a high profile online. So if you were to reach out to these people, they'll probably listen to you. But if you're basically someone that hasn't got any exposure at the moment, how are you going to get noticed by those people? So... What I've done is I've used Twitter, and that's one of the reasons why I've, why I've kind of been really pushing Twitter. Is I've used Twitter rather than as a way to get um, clients. I've used it as a way to um, kind of be seen as someone influential within um, around logos, so that I can get these opportunities that come up where I can get links so a lot of what i do uh, all of the stuff with social even though i i i mean i'm not purely doing it for seo um but that's one of the reasons why um because you know so, something as basic as posting on twitter every day it seems very simple on a daily basis but when you start to get a substantial amount of followers um you're kind of on people's radars and, um, you know, if you was to reach out to them, 
they those people might already know you from social media in some way, and that gives you a real good ammo for the you know for these opportunities. So things like um, judge, being on juries for um, logo awards, being on the jury, you generally get a, a link from the site, and um, it's normally quite an authoritative link. So there's all these lots of you know lots of different opportunities and lots of different ways that you can get links and and the way that I've done that is through um blogging and um doing interviews and um you know being on juries for uh logo awards um all the all the different things I mentioned the reason why I've been doing it is to get back links This is perfect that was fantastic I want to recap for, for our audience just to prove to them I've been listening this entire time. One, get your metadata game. This is the quick win. Get the keywords, the meta titles, get your address in there, associated keywords. That's important. Two, mm -hmm. make sure your content is searchable. I know we're an image-driven society, but Google can't see the images, so you got to start to write. Mm -hmm. 500 to 1,000 words, get it going. Be consistent about it so that you start to be found and you start to rank. External linking is not easy to do, but if you can do that, the more credible the links are, the more likely it is that you're going to move up in the ranks. And the way that you do that is to provide value to other people. Mm -hmm. You can do a guest blog or vlog, and then you get a backlink out of that. And your tip to them was if you're on an interview, you know that there's a finite start and end time, and you're going to get the thing done. Whereas writing a blog or an article could take you a really long time with no finite deadline. Mm hmm and, and lastly, I like this part. This is really smart. You're not trying to sell people. You, when you use Twitter, you're just trying to establish expertise and authority and it allows you then to open um, doors open for you and open dialogue with other more influential people in the space so that you can get that backlink at some point. Mm -hmm. And lastly, to be a judge on one of these shows. So once you establish that you're an authority in the space and that, that you, you carry some weight, things happen for you. So if you direct message somebody on Twitter, I mean, this is what I do. I'll look at who this person is, how many followers they have. If you have 35 followers, I might not take them as seriously as somebody who has 35,000 followers. Because mm -hmm. whoever's got that is doing something right. And I need to check them out. Mm -hmm. Excellent. We got into a lot of deep stuff here. I want to pull back a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood and your home life, if you don't mind sharing. Because yeah. I always like to know where somebody comes from. Before we continue, here's John Roth. hey -o. John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the Pro Membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. Now, I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you. Don't feel like you have to answer them all, but I'm just trying to frame this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Did you know 
that you always wanted to be in the creative space? And at what point did you know and were your folks supportive of you doing this or did you really have to go against the grain and be a rebel? Um, okay, I, I guess growing up as a kid, um, I loved drawing. Um, it was my, I guess, one of my main passions. Like I, I was that kid that was kind of... Um, always drawing little flip books in the corner of, uh, you know, notepads. And uh, I was a big fan of Wallace and Gromit and Aardman animations. And I used to make uh, little models out of plasticine and uh, try to make my own animations and used to make models. And, uh, you know, gen generally making stuff and drawing was uh, probably the only thing that I was really interested in. Um, as for my parents being supportive, um, yeah, I mean, they, they never really uh, went against anything um, that I would want to do. Um, I mean, to, to be honest, I, I know this sounds terrible, but I, I don't remember ever being that overly ambitious as a kid. Um, I know that I wanted to... Um, do something in in art so kind of when I moved on from from like finishing school I, I didn't really know specifically what I wanted to do um, but I was always quite into um, film like, I'm quite a big film fan and uh, I, I guess if I could have done anything it would have been working in uh, movies um, but I knew I, I've known most of my life that I wanted to do something creative um, because it's what I've enjoyed doing. So no real friction points there? It's just a natural evolution and progression? In terms of, of my parents, just so that you understand, my, um, I'm the youngest of quite a big family. So my parents, uh, they, they had um, separate families and um, separate lives and, and they met older in when when they were older in life so my my mum had um four children and my dad also had four children and they met um later in life um then they they had my sister together and um and then they had me at the end so the the age difference between me and um like older brothers and sisters is, is quite um quite crazy i mean just just to give you the idea uh my oldest brother, he has a daughter that's actually older than me. So I was an uncle. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, is it that far apart? Yeah, it really is that, that far apart. Like, literally. Hold on. Okay, let me process that. Oh, hold on. Then that means he's um, maybe, like, at least 20 years older than you, right? My 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 brother, uh, I, I, I to be honest, I, I don't know him that well. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's like a thirty-year difference, something like yeah. that. Yeah, okay, it's yeah, got to be at least twenty. Years. I didn't yeah, know how yeah. early started his family. Wow. So you're like the real-life Brady Bunch almost, where your mom had four kids, your dad had four kids, they met, fell in love, and had two more kids. Yeah. So I mean, growing up, uh, I was in a in a house. Um, I I grew up on a council estate, and there was quite a few of us in in that one house. Uh, my parents didn't work. My my dad uh, used to just spend most of his time on the allotment, and my mum spent the rest of her time kind of raising us. Um, so I I never really had anyone. 
around me growing up that was, um, you know, continuously going to work and, uh, you know, kind of living in the way that I am now. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously they were supportive and uh, wanted me to do well. Um, but I, I guess the, the only real friction that I had was when I uh, started to talk about potentially going to university. So um, at college, uh, so like A-levels, what we have in the UK, and that's like from age, I think, 16 to 18, we have A-levels. And um, I, I studied art primarily, and uh, my... Uh, teachers at that point, they was really keen for me to go on to further education. And um, I remember going to one uh, university that had these art foundations, <clears throat> so where they had art foundations. And um, uh, they was also working on a lot of cars, and I found that all that stuff so cool. I remember going into this... Um, this university that was building these life-size cars and these smaller cars and it was doing all these drawings using all these different pens and stuff like that and I just found that really exciting and I thought I'd love to do that um, but I I would go home and I'd, I'd start talking about this um, with my parents and because I'm the youngest of such a big family um, my dad he's like uh, you're not going to university. All my other kids, they're successful without that, so you're not going. And I don't know, I, I never felt the need to argue that. Um, so, you know, when, when it came to that time, when I was 18, I went out, you know, basically looking for work. Um, but it, it was hard, because I, I got careers advice at that point, and... Um, I spoke to them, and you know they they generally asked you what you want to do and um I told them, and they they were literally as blunt as saying you're not going to be able to do that if you don't go to university um, so i don't know I, I didn't give up on the idea, but I just focused on trying to find a job at that point and i I was very lucky that I did kind of. <laughs> find a related job but it was it was through you know a string of events that thankfully i i did find that job i can explain that story if you want to hear more about that you never went to university so this is all self-taught stuff yeah oh my goodness okay i i gotta say okay so you're 18 years old and you're the youngest of 10 kids and you go to this school and you see them. I know exactly what you're talking about. These model clay cars and these guys oh, so cool. doing these full-size yeah, nice. tape drawings and profiles. And it, it, as a kid, you're just like blown away. Like human beings can draw that well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And then you, you, you come back, I'm sure. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, like super excited. Like, I'm going to go there. And your dad's like, no, you're not. <laughs> Were you <laughs> heartbroken? Some... I mean, you said you didn't fight much and... But I didn't feel hard. How did you feel, man? Because I, I don't know. I, I'd already had the, the expectation to some degree that mm -hmm. I probably wasn't going to go to university anyway. So I wouldn't say I felt heartbroken, but um, disappointed that it's like, oh, I can't do any of that. Because it kind of oh, feels like if you don't, if you don't go to these things, I just, 
I feel very differently about it now. But at that point, it's like, oh, I can never do anything like that. Literally, I thought I'd probably end up working in Sainsbury's or something like that for the rest of my life. Wait, wait, <laughs> doing, doing what? Stacking shelves or something, you know, just finding yeah, like, some way of making money. Right. I mean, so this is very interesting. You you kind of describe your your childhood as there's no friction points. Everything was cool. Everybody's supportive. But now that I hear you saying this, no, it wasn't supportive. I mean, you, you said that your, both your parents didn't really work, so you didn't really have a model to understand what it means to go out and work and be a professional person. None of your siblings went to university. And so you're just kind of like this tiny little gear caught up in the machine, just moving along. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and, and that explains a lot to me about your, your general attitude and your disposition. Like, you can obviously tell, like, Ian... He's kind of this very even keeled, like it doesn't seem like anything bugs him. And he even admitted he wasn't overly ambitious either. <laughs> and for you now to not only work one job, but you have two jobs and that you're ranking on page one or two for a Google search and you got 88,000 followers on Twitter. That's a big deal, man. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now that you're on your own doing really well, do you look back at that childhood and say, damn it? I not not that I want you to start like being angry about it, but how would you have been a parent to yourself at that age? Um, to be honest, now I've kind of gone through that and um, essentially come out the other end doing what I want to do. I don't think you have to go to university for certain things. Like I genuinely feel, to some degree, because I've taught myself and really made an effort and and continue to learn the people that I do know that have studied in university I feel like I'm ahead of them so that I mean there, there was a point uh in one of my early jobs where there was um three of us that was working in in a team and we was very much kind of basically the same age and two of the um, guys in the team they had gone to university but I hadn't. Even though we were the same age, I'd had about two to three years practical experience within a company where I'd been able to kind of learn on the job. And I, I feel to some degree being in that position, um, even though I feel that I was very, very lucky to get that opportunity, being in that position, I... I feel like I probably learned more than what they did at university in three years. I feel like because I was kind of like teaching myself and um, observing and uh, doing as much as I could, to some degree, I felt like in terms of my skill set, I was ahead of them within the same period of time. I might be kidding myself, but that's the way that I feel about it. So you looked at it like you got practical training while they're in school learning academic stuff and you could teach yourself the rest. Yeah, because what what I found was um, I, when I was when I was about 21, I was very, very lucky that I got this admin based job and a small percentage of this admin based job was working on uh, posters and um, printed uh, material for like this national sales team and I didn't know any of that software at that point um, so I mean it was like Quark Express the illustrator um, mm -hmm. you know creating these posters 
I would put stuff together kind of how I thought worked well. But sometimes it's like, it didn't look as good as the stuff that, you know, you see when you pick up a brochure in, you know, in a shop. It didn't look as good as that. There was something not quite right, but it was good enough for what they needed. Um, because what I was doing at that point was just creating, um, uh, was very basic posters for a sales team so that they could go out and um, sell medical products. So to some degree, it could have been like lines on a piece of paper with labels next to it. It could have been very, very basic. So what I was doing at that point was good enough. But there was things that bugged me, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. So I was in this position where I was doing work, and when I did start to learn um, you know, about grid systems, uh, you know, all the more academic stuff, Rather than learning the academic stuff first, I was actually in this position where I was already doing the work and I could see how what I was learning was actually improving my work. And I think to some degree where, where the education system kind of fails is that they teach you all these things that you need to know, but at that point you've never actually done any work, so you don't know the difference. You know, you just start using it, but you don't really understand why. But I feel very lucky because I was making mistakes and start and I started to apply um, those those things to to my work. I could see things improving, especially when I started to learn more about um, typography and and grids and using baseline grids and stuff like that. My God, my work went from you know I, I think it was good, but I felt like the bar was raised when I started to learn more about that. I see. You're talking about having context for learning, not learning in the abstract. So it made the lesson stick more. Like now you knew why, because you're struggling with it first, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, be because because I could physically see that what I was learning was improving my work, and I really understood it. It kind of gave me this drive, like, what else is there? <laughs> you know, what more can I learn? And I felt this need to kind of search down that more academic stuff which i don't know if people find it boring but i i got the assumption that that kind of stuff is is fairly boring people want to get you know stuck in and, and start working on projects but because because i was doing all this work that that wasn't quite perfect i feel like i was at more more of an advantage because yeah i was able to take it and see my work improve in in a you know, practical, real-life um, situation. I, I think you watch some of our shows, right, Ian? Yeah. So I, I have a. I want your opinion on something. If I can get something in real quick from you, is we're doing this typography series where I'm sitting down with designers, formerly trained, formally trained designers, and critiquing the heck out of their work. Mm -hmm. And then also Ben Burns and and I and Matthew have been doing this thing where he's trying to compare how he presents work and talks about work as opposed to how we present work. And there's an obvious difference. So what's your take on that? Because both Matthew and I are art center trained designers and we, we speak that language. We understand that those little details in that grid that you're talking about. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, I'm worried that probably I, I haven't seen everything that you, you've mm -hmm. done, but when I do sit down and watch, watch it, you know, um, not being formally trained, I I, I really enjoy it. I, I get a lot out of it. I, I find it interesting. Um, 
watching how you give feedback. I mean, for, for me, when, when I watch your videos, probably the most interesting thing for me is not what you're doing, it's how you're explaining it. Mm -hmm. Because I find that interesting because um, I sometimes need to teach um, uh, juniors when they come in and I need to sit down with them. So when I do see you speaking through, I you know, I, I get a lot from, from that. And um, I, I think the way that you explain it works for um works for both sides of it like i i get a lot out out of it based on my experience i want to circle back to something and it's a theme that i'm hearing from you and this is probably what the show is going to be structured around but it's quite fascinating to me to hear you talk about um some of the anxiety or things that you're scared of yet you continue to move down a path like you didn't know logos but you did it anyways you don't like speaking to clients yet you're doing podcasts there's this theme you know like you throw yourself into the things that scare you mm -hmm. how do you overcome that um i i guess a, a big part of it is that i know that i need to do it so i have to find a way to to do that um i think it's worth explaining to your listeners and being totally open um that Growing up in, in general, especially from quite a young age, I've always been quite uh, an anxious person. Um, I, that's possibly come from, uh, you know, growing up being the youngest kid and, uh, you know, I could get away with not really talking to anyone. Um, right. But I've, I've always been quite nervous. So, for example, something like doing public speaking oh, my God, I get so nervous, you know, to the point where mm. I'm shaking, my heart's beating, um, I want to throw up. Um, you know, sometimes anxiety can physically um, stop you from doing anything. Um, and I've, I've had a number of different things. And uh, a few years ago, I actually got diagnosed um, by a, it was by a nurse, not by a doctor, but they told me that I had social anxiety. Um, and uh, I actually went for therapy because I thought, okay, I'd, I'd love to kind of overcome this. So I, I, I had a few sessions with um, a therapist and they explained to me a, a very interesting um, form of therapy, which has really helped me. And, and that's it's it's called um, CBT, um, co cognitive behavioral therapy, and basically, um, thoughts, behavior, and feelings are all linked. So, um, how phobias are developed? Say, say, if, say if you're a young age and you get this spider who crawls up your leg, and you don't like it, and you're a little bit scared, and you push it away. Th that might have been enough for you to always avoid spiders every time you see them. So that behavior of avoiding, that actually makes your um, thoughts your thoughts and feelings um, worse. So these three things, they're related. So something like a fear of spiders, if you continuously avoided them and you think about them as being scary, your feelings would be quite strong. So that's how some people have very strong phobias of um, spiders, for example. So for, for me, with um, uh, 
public speaking, I I can I remember the exact time where uh, I was probably about eight years old. I had to do um, this. Uh, I had a line in a play, and I had such a dry throat. I don't know why, and my voice went funny. <laughs> and um, from like, what do you moment, mean funny? I don't know. I just had a dry throat and it came out all wrong and uh, it was just the most humiliating thing ever at that point. You know, you're in front of all the mums and dads and uh, we had to keep doing that play and every time, like the next day, I'm like, oh, that doesn't happen again. And I remember it just got worse and worse. So any time I had to, um, you know, do uh, like presentations at school, I kept trying to avoid them. So I kept yeah. trying, you know, skive off score, pretend I'm ill, um, loads of different things. And you can kind of get away with that when you're at school. But when you start to actually get into um, work and stuff like that, you can't avoid those things. And what I was essentially doing to myself is my behavior was Im- impacting well my thoughts was impacting my behavior and that was impacting my feelings so what was actually happening from that very young age i was basically making this this um there's like an arc if you can imagine an arc and um the first experience is like a small bump and as you keep avoiding these um scary situations the arc becomes uh bigger so with public speaking and telephone calls and everything like that, my the, I'm probably at the top of that peak. So, um, you know, I just, just feel very, very anxious in those situations. And the way that you can get around it, and it's only required a couple of conversations, if you can change your behavior, you can change your thoughts, and that changes your feelings doesn't happen overnight but you can that fear that's developed from a a very young age you can reverse it so for my um fear of public speaking say the way that i've decided to get around this is to put myself in situations where i have to present and um quite a comfortable way of doing that has been to sit down on my own and record a podcast <laughs> because this for for me sitting down in front of a microphone with this thing recording knowing that a crowd of people are going to be listening that immediately makes me feel uncomfortable and putting myself through that experience again and again is making it much more comfortable for me so that's the reason why I do um podcast is for that reason because it helps me feel more comfortable to physically talk in front of a crowd and it also helps me to um, feel more comfortable on telephone conversations so all these little things basically if if you have a phobia or a fear or something rather than avoid it which makes it worse if you kind of take it face on you, you can actually get through that um, one other thing that I found useful um, that uh, I was told was um, imagine someone and they come in and you speak with them and they're nervous. What do you think of that person? And I guess I've always kind of 
thought that people would um, kind of look down on me because I'm nervous. But when I start to think about how would I feel, I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm going to support them because I want them to do well. When you start to think of it in that way, how people actually are going to think of you, knowing that most people are probably okay with it, it makes it feel more comfortable as well. So these like small things and um, you know putting yourself in those uh, situations where um, you know you're you're doing that thing that 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 scares you, it, it just becomes mm -hmm. more comfortable over time. I mean, I, I'm not totally over um, that phobia, but I I don't want um, fears to overtake my life, um, especially when I got to a point where. Um, you know, with 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 Logo Geek, I've I've continued to um, grow it, and I got it to a point where the next obvious step is um, podcast interviews, um, doing public speaking, all this sort of stuff, workshops. I don't really want fear to hold me back. I I don't want to. I don't want to look back when I'm old and think. You let you know you didn't do that because you were scared. It feels very weak. So I would like to um, just keep pushing through my phobias and overcome them, and you know, hopefully, um, one day. Uh, I know I've spoken to you about this. Hopefully, like one day, I would like to um, do a like a TED talk or speak at like uh, a How conference, say. And here today, I uh, that idea scares me. But the more I'm doing podcasts like this, I'm feeling more comfortable. I'm feeling more comfortable about it. So I'm hoping mm -hmm. that if I keep doing it, I'll be able to achieve that goal. Good for you. I'm I'm feeling your pain because I, I know a lot of people find it difficult to believe that you or I, who are now being very public and the way we're communicating with people. That the anxiety of public speaking, the sound of our own voice, and people looking at us or paying attention to what it is that we say scares the heck out of us. When you talked about these oral reports that you had to give, that was me. Mm. <laughs> so scared. I didn't want to do it. I, I did everything around that. And sometimes the teachers would let you get away with it, and sometimes they wouldn't. Even reading aloud in literature class, English lit. You know, when they would go around the room and you read a paragraph at a time. Even doing that w would creep me out. Yeah, same, same with me. Any of those situations in class where it's like, Ian, read this out. Oh, it was, the, you know, just the, the worst thing ever. Um, yeah. Especially because I've always had a slight stutter as well. And I mean, that that's one thing that I've been able to cure as well by um, doing uh, a podcast. But... It's just it's it's horrible those situations, but mm -hmm. I th I think it's good that they do that because um, it kind of trains you up. Because I I mean I I don't know about you, the the more things I'm doing, I'm not overcoming the fear. I'm just able to better cope with it. And I think that's probably worth briefly talking about. So I find one of the best coping mechanisms is breathing. A nervous person, they, they tend to kind of um, lean forward. But if you change your posture 
and you put your shoulders back and your chest out, immediately you feel more confident because you're able to breathe in a different way. So at those moments when I'm um, immediately feeling incredibly nervous, um, so for example, prepping for something like what I'm doing now, I just breathe a few times. So breathing through, through your nose for six seconds and out through four, it sounds like voodoo, but in all, in all honesty, in situations where I've been in um, uh, quite big meetings in my job at that e-commerce company, I've had to sit down with companies like GSK, and there's like 10 people around the table, and they're all in suits, and you know there's some uh, quite important people in that room. And I need to present my work to them. And I, oh my God, I'm always just feeling so incredibly nervous. So what I do is I just breathe and focus on my breathing. And I find breathing generally calms you down. That's a great tip. When you're nervous, you're almost like hyperventilating. You're breathing really fast, short in breath, and it just compounds the problem. So your, your mind, A, you need oxygen so your brain can function. But just the act of breathing and focusing on that diverts your attention away from the fear. It helps to ground you and make you present to where you're at. I love that. So I have to ask you this question. Yeah, sure. At what point did you start to come to this realization that you, you got to stop avoiding the things that scare you? And that I, I love this line that you said, if you change your behavior, you'll change your thoughts and your feelings. Now, it's hard to change your thoughts and your feelings. So just change the action, the thing that you do by doing the podcasting or public speaking. It allows you to slowly become more comfortable with it. So eventually your feelings will be like, hey, that wasn't so bad. I can do this now and I'm quite good at it. So how did you come to that realization? Was that through therapy or was it through some other kind of discovery? I guess I got to a point where um, I noticed a string of different things, um, which included like the, the fear of public speaking, like I mentioned. I've always been quite uncomfortable speaking on the telephone. Um, if I'm in a large crowd of people, I um, if I'm holding like a glass of champagne and there's like 100 people around me, I would start shaking a little bit. Um, and I say that probably the reason why I, I wanted to get do something about it was um, if if I had to eat soup <laughs> with a group of people around me and it was very watery, and I start shaking, you start spilling it. I just remember this one time, I, it was just the most humiliating thing ever. Thankfully, it was um, family, but yeah, I, I was shaking so much, um, you know, there was something so stupid that I thought, okay, I need to, I need to change this. Um, you know, I, there, there must be you know, the, the, I guess the main thing that I wanted to cure was more the, the shaking in um, certain situations. Um, but then I realized, oh, these things are probably all related. So that's that's that time when I thought, okay, I need to do something about this. So I um, spoke to a doctor and um, then got advice from there afterwards. And that's when I learned more about this um, cognitive behavioral therapy that I mentioned. And I guess mm -hmm. it kind of stemmed from there. Your fears and phobias and stuff like that, in most cases, it's actually pretty normal to have fear. But the, the, the realization that you can actually overcome these things, I, I find um, 
fascinating. Um, I think it's worth talking about another thing, I guess, that, that's been a real impact on me over the last, like, year and a half. And, and one of the, probably the reason why I've kind of gone freelance and, and why I've started to agree to more things. And um, it's going to be quite a personal story, but I think it's good to talk about these things. So um, my mom last year, she passed away. I'm sorry about that. It's okay, Chris. And she's, uh, she was in a care home. So there was a lot mm-hmm. of um, elderly people in that home. And um, I, I guess that the, it, was, it was around the same time there was a, a couple of different videos i seen and um, people like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, he's always mentioning it that you're going to die one day. And I, I guess when, when you go into a home like every other week to go and visit your mom and you see these people that they're nearing the end of their life and... Um, you know, you, you get to a point where you actually see someone pass away. It makes you realise that um, that's going to happen to you one day. And I guess I've, I've, it kind of gave me this um, realisation that I don't want to be in that home when I'm old and regret <laughs> things. And that way of thinking has had a real impact on me because that was one of the reasons why I decided to go freelance is because I was working on Logo Geek as a side venture and I also had a quite a, a, a demanding day job and I could never make the choice of what I wanted to do. I kind of felt like I needed to give up one or the other and I made my mind up I'm going to do this. I feel like I need to do this because if I don't do this, I'm going to regress it. And it's the same with a lot of things that come up. I got invited by um, a friend of mine called uh, Preston. Uh, he runs this uh, blog called Milo. He asked me if I wanted to be a co-host on his podcast. And the idea of that kind of terrified me. But I decided if I don't do this, I'm going to regress it. There's been a lot of things that have come up in the last two years where I've said yes rather than no. Mm-hmm. Like, even this podcast now... Okay, I feel a lot more comfortable doing podcasts, um, you know, just purely because I've done my own. But, you know, a, a few years ago, the idea of recording my own podcast and inviting guests on, that that whole thing kind of um, terrified me to some, to some extent. You know, the... The idea of, you know, having to interview someone when you're not the best at having a conversation anyway, that's very intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And if it goes wrong, whatever. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I'd rather rather try and fail rather Mm. than not, rather than never try. Because Mm -hmm. like I said, I don't want to be, you know, 80 year old. And look back and think, you never did anything. <laughs> Such right. a coward, blah. You know, so I'd rather keep trying and, and keep pushing and uh, try and fail rather than never try anything. And you know what? I've done my podcast now and I get so many people that that have given good feedback. I've I've been able to speak to um, idols of mine. Um, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast now if it wasn't for that. Mm-hmm. as well um so there's all these things that kind of happen as a consequence of putting myself in situations i wouldn't have done so that i think it's so worth p- 
putting yourself in situations that's uncomfortable. And like I said, worst case scenario, um, you know, if if I screw up, is it really going to matter? You know, if I went freelance, it, like if I went. If I went full-time freelance and I got to this situation where I didn't make any money, worst case scenario is I could probably get my job back or I could go and, you know, sleep on, like, my sister's sofa or something like that. There's there's backup plans to everything. So worst right. case scenario is not that bad. So I'd rather try and fail rather than never try. What you imagine as the worst case scenario is never as bad as you think. And what you have to gain is so much greater than what you think. So the risk reward is to just go for it. Now, I, I got to ask you a couple really quick things. And, I, and there's one other big thing I want to talk about before we, I let you go here. The quick thing is when you're talking about that story about your hands shaking with soup, how old were you? I'm trying to map out the timeline here. Um, hmm. I guess when it got really bad, uh, it was probably about 27, 28. I mean, so I, that, I had it. I had not it. that long ago, then you're saying. Um, I mean, I, I had it. I had it quite a lot, but you know what, Chris? I just wouldn't order soup. And oh, you know, man. say 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 if you know it's a work dinner and you know Christmas dinner, mm. I just wouldn't order it. But if you have no choice, <laughs> that is it goes back to that um, CBT therapy I mentioned because I kept avoiding the situation when it did come to it. I, you know. It, I, that's all I was thinking of. It's like, oh my god, mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shake, you know. And you get <laughs> so focused on that. And um, right. if you can imagine, if you focus on your hand and nothing else, it does start shaking anyway because you're you're so focused <laughs> on that one thing. And that's literally what I was doing. Um, right. it, it just made it worse. Really like you shake a little bit, you keep focusing, and your hand shaking yeah, even yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. it probably started uh, quite young, but it's only been as I've got older when mm -hmm. you know you get into these situations where you can't really get out of it like you can when you're a kid. That's right. when it's like, oh, I need to do something about this. <laughs> Is there a correlation between you working on yourself and your social anxiety and Logo Geek taking off? Are they at similar timelines here? I'm trying to map it out. I think so. Do you think one spurred the other on? Do you think that y you're seeking help got you to start doing the logo exploration? Or was it the logo stuff that you're like, you know what? I did that. I, I was able to overcome that fear. Maybe I need to start working on this other thing. Which came first? Um, good question. Uh... I mean, to some degree, the reason why I want to overcome my fear of public speaking is because I want to do more with Logo Geek. I want to do the podcast. I want to do the workshops. I want to mm. do um, the talks and stuff like that. I mean, that for me, it just makes sense. That's what it should be. But I don't feel like I'm the right person to be doing that. So I need to turn myself into that person. <laughs> um yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint an exact time in it. I, I guess it was all happening at the same point, and it mm -hmm. makes sense that trying to, you know, push myself and improve myself has correlated with, with that. I mean, like I said, the only reason, or one of the main reasons why I started a podcast in the first place, and when I say a podcast, I don't mean the one that I have there now. There was another series that I did um, a few years ago where it's just me on my own. 
but I've since taken them down. But those helped a lot, and the more recent one has helped significantly even more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, mm-hmm. there is a correlation between the two. Pushing myself to overcome my fears has also um, helped to grow things. So this this is like the the rebirth, the renaissance of Ian, like 2.0, somewhere in your mid to late 20s, you start to go on this adventure and start to push yourself to go outside your comfort zone and wonderful, incredible things have happened to you. And I just want to clarify one thing. You are now no longer working full time. You're on your own. You're an in- independent business owner now, right? Um, it's actually 50-50. So okay. I, I work for that e-commerce agency that I mentioned three days a week. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time, um, I mean, technically it's two days, but it's actually the rest, all of the free time I have <laughs> right. uh, working on my own thing. And you, you mentioned something too about what was the worst that could happen if you went and scaled back your time. If you started to get no work, you said you could probably just return to your job. And had you quit, people don't know this. Usually when you return, you actually make more money you negotiate for a higher rate. So lots of positive, only a few negatives. And the most most of the negatives are imagined within your mind as to what's going to happen. Now, one, one more quick question here is about the social anxiety that you have. How has this impacted your social life? Um, I feel like I'm a, a lot more confident. I mean, even my, my sister mentioned, uh, she's like, I wonder why you got so much more confident. I, I've had people mention it and I, I guess, you know, just going out and I, I've i got to a point now where there was a, there, there, there was a period of time where I, I really had to kind of focus um, in order to overcome these fears, but now it's becoming a lot more comfortable. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's had a positive impact on... Um, on my career and personal life. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So I I think I want to wrap it with this big, big one. And we'll talk about this. This is something that a lot of people in our community feel and they reach out to me. I'm sure they reach out to you as well is how do you overcome uh, having a creative block? Is that something that's happened to you where you feel frustrated that and you're worried that you can't get through that, the apex of the problem and overcome it? Now, I've got quite strong opinions on this to some degree that I I don't feel that I have created block in the same way as as a lot of people do. Like I I never get to that point where I physically can't move on. Um and it's it's possibly due to um my process. So for example, I I might have times when I don't feel as in, as inspired but I'm always able to finish something off. Um, And I think that's partly that attitude has come from uh, the uh, web agency that I work for, where I don't have the time to have creative block. I have to get that job done by, Mm -hmm. you know, a certain time. And the way that I've been able to overcome that is um, by kind of having go-to styles and, and go-to techniques. And what I focus on is rather than being creative, I focus on getting the job done. So with with websites, there are um, 
I guess, standard templates that you could kind of work with. And you can normally find a couple of websites online that have the right look and feel that you want. And what I focus on doing is rather than, you know, trying to create the most amazing thing ever, I literally focus on getting it done. And I find thinking about the project in that way generally really helps break through those those situations because yes okay that thing that you've done might not be the most creative thing or the most amazing job that you've ever done but getting something done rather than getting nothing done is so much more important because what I find is when you finished it and you see it you can generally see okay if I tweak that and that and that I can make it better so I, that's kind of how I deal with these situations where, um, you know, when, when you're feeling not that inspired, just focus on doing something because doing something is better than doing nothing. Mm. Um, with logo projects, I, I guess that, that does become a little bit more challenging because in those situations you can actually kind of feel exhausted of ideas. Um, but... I feel that my um, sketchbook process really, really helps um, with that. So what I do is I, I sketch down everything that comes into my mind. But what I feel a lot of people do is they sit down and keep thinking. And if you keep thinking and you think, like, if you try to think of anything, you can normally think of something. It just might suck. Like, it might be <laughs> the suckiest idea, but you can normally think of something. And... A lot of people, they, they would just abandon the idea and they won't draw it down. But what I do is I draw it down. And you know what? Sometimes that crap idea <laughs> is actually quite good when you see it on paper. Or there's something <laughs> about it. There's something about it that might trigger something else. So mm -hmm. I I generally work in a sketchbook and I literally anything, even if it's the worst idea... Rather than keep thinking about it, I'll just draw it on paper and get it out of my head. And seriously, what you see in your mind isn't always what the reality is. So seeing it on paper, I find it really helps. And I find that's a really good way of getting through those times where when you can't think of that great idea. Because sometimes the rubbish idea that you have in your head is actually the perfect solution. Well, I, I want to add to this a little bit. And I think it comes to this whole thing about you just getting your ideas down i love how pragmatic how pragmatic you are you just keep moving forward it's at least it's better than not getting out of the block and one of the things i i, I try and tell designers is don't be so quick to judge it's not that i think that my crap idea is going to be better when i draw it it's just if you deny yourself the experience of creating that stepping back and saying okay that was pretty lame how can i improve it then you're just stuck so make something, step away from it, and then look at it objectively and try to understand why isn't it working and solve that problem. And if you continue to do that, eventually, at some iteration of that drawing, it will get good, or at least it won't suck. Mm -hmm. But that's where, if you guys can imagine this, and I, I think I borrowed this from something I read or saw, and it's something kinesthetic that you can do. If you're listening to this podcast right now, if you reach out your hand in front of your face right now, palms facing up, and if you say, 
the left side is judgment and the right hand is your idea. And if you put those two things together where the left hand is clasping the right hand, this is what's happening. You're kind of choking and stifling your own creativity. So what I ask you to do is when you think of an idea is to separate that physical thing and don't judge, just hold off on judging. So there's a simple rule that I like to try to do, which is a 24 hour rule, which is just make stuff, don't edit, don't overthink it and step away from it. Come back to it 24 hours later and then with fresh eyes, see if it does suck and then make, make it better by being critical and objective about it. Ian, we've been talking for quite some time now. I appreciate you going the distance with me. I think this is probably a good point for us to wrap it up. I truly am just cheering for you and what you have said about imagining how people see you struggling, how they feel compassion for you and root you on. That's me right now. I'm feeling it. And the best of success to you. I can see your TED talk happening in the very near future. And I can't wait to see that. Thanks, Chris. It's, uh, um, it's been such an honor to be on your show. Um, it's, it's, it's a big deal for me to be on here. So yeah, I, I appreciate um, uh, you taking the time to, to speak to me. Hi, my name's Ian Paget, and you're listening to The Future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future. <laughs>